0: My name is Alyssa Robinson, and you're listening to The TREACH Podcast. Jeff Green is an architect and interior designer in Dallas. He is also fostering to adopt two brothers, ages seven and eight, with formal adoption expected in November of this year. Jeff talks with me about the worries that come with being a single, adoptive, and gay father, and how he is able to cope with that stress. Jeff was on our virtual roundtable about stress and worry, and if you missed it, you can watch at tmumc.org wellness. So Jeff, before we get into the whole conversation about worry and stress, you were invited onto the, round, the virtual roundtable uh, because of this amazing experience that you've gone through in becoming a dad. And we didn't really get a lot of background. We know that you're an adoptive dad of two wonderful boys, and that is very new to you. But can you walk us through the journey of becoming a dad and when you knew that this is something that you wanted?
1: Sure. I think even when I was much younger, even I think before I had really accepted who I was as a a gay man and and really understood my sexuality. I knew that I wanted to be a parent and I knew that I wanted to adopt. Um, You know, even if I were straight and, you know, that weren't a problem, then I I had always wanted to adopt. And I, I don't know that there was any incident or that really prompted that. I just felt that there are so many existing kids out there that really need good homes. And that's, that's the path that I would take. So then of course, you know, in my twenties, the whole coming out process, you know, undergirding all of that is that your life, your relationships, what your future family looks like, isn't going to be what you thought it would be or what everybody else's is like. It's kind of, I compare it to, you know, if when you're being raised, especially if you're straight, I mean, you can see the path before you, right. Whether that's the path you actually take or not, but you know, you graduate from high school and then you go to college or, you know, you get this job and then you find the person you marry and then you have kids and, and it's, this kind of prescribed path that you know, most people take. Um, but I think when I accepted the fact that I was gay, it was almost as if that path before me was completely dark, completely black. I couldn't even see my hand in front of my face. Like, what are the next steps? What kind of future would my life have? The desire to be married, the desire to be a parent and have children, um, would that even be a possibility for me? So I think there was a period of time where even though I knew I wanted to be a parent, I just didn't know if that would even be possible. You know, if you're if you're gay and you want to be a parent, it's there's a lot more steps <laughs> than if you're straight um, so anyway so I I think that um, I had convinced myself that unless I were with somebody I wouldn't want to be a parent I I think I had convinced myself that you know kids deserve two parents and you um, you know if i have a choice about it that's how it should be and so then i was necessarily making my becoming a parent dependent upon finding someone else and being in a relationship i was making those i was connecting those two things so it
0: was almost like what i really want is to be a dad and finding a relationship is a step to what I really want.
1: Correct. Yeah. And then the fact that, um, you know, my family wouldn't, you know, fully accept that person or, um, or you know, maybe they wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't. But there wasn't any in indication that they would accept that person and our relationship and our marriage, um, you know, and, and our family. So it's kind of like, okay, well, I can't be in a relationship until I get things right with my parents, my family. And so everything kind of began and ended with that. And as long as I felt like my family wouldn't fully accept me and any relationship I might have, That kept me from being in a relationship because I thought, okay, who wants to come into this situation and deal with this? And then that kept me from being a parent because how can I be a single parent and do everything that needs to be done on one income? And, you know, I have rheumatoid arthritis and, you know, stress um, definitely exacerbates that. And is it fair to to have children and not be able to be a hundred percent what they deserve. So it was just it, all of these contingencies that was really keeping me from that. So, um, at some point, maybe it was, I think the middle of 2019 when I started seeing a therapist and, um, he was kind of digging a little bit deeper into who I am and what I wanted. And, it came up that I wanted to be a parent and he was really good at being able to separate all of these things. You don't have to be in this relationship or marriage in order to be a parent. You you don't have to have this um, welcoming, affirming, um, supportive family in order to have a healthy relationship. And so he was really good at, at walking me through those steps and pushing me to be a parent and uh, I remember the first time he brought that up I thought you know this was always in the back of the, my mind what I wanted to do but am I ready for this I can I can't believe we're really seriously talking about this um, because I think I had set up all these obstacles to give me an excuse for not achieving what I had wanted to achieve.
0: Why do you think you did that? <sighs>
1: I don't know. I think sometimes really pursuing what you want opens yourself up to failure, to massive vulnerability. What if I'm not a good parent? And what if I really screw this up? Um, You know, so if there are all of these obstacles in your way that you can credibly say hey i've tried my best i you know i can't really do that because of xyz then it takes the onus off of you it takes any responsibility away from you and
0: i so i want to um pontificate for a moment because neither of us know the answer to this but i just want to get your perspective What do you think is the difference between all of these feelings that you were feeling about becoming an adoptive dad versus somebody who naturally has kids the natural, like, sexual way? Yep. What is the difference between what you're feeling? What are the extra pressures that you're putting on yourself that maybe these other parents don't put on themselves? And of course, we might after you express all of this, we'll have someone be like, no, we feel that, too, (laughs) which would be great. Right.
1: Well, you know, there's no danger of me just accidentally getting pregnant or getting somebody pregnant. So it's it's an intentional planned process. And I think unless you're adopting generally. Right. It's a very intrusive, invasive process, obviously kids, foster kids, adu- you know, kids that you would be adopting are one of the most vulnerable populations in our world. So they necessarily need and deserve a lot of these hurdles that, y- that we have to clear. So there, I guess the good thing is, is that along the way, there are plenty of exit ramps like, okay, do I really want to do this? You know, and I'm doing foster to adopt, So at any point I could say, yeah, I'm, this is not what I want to do, you know? So I think in one way, like I said, it's a lot more work. And in some cases it's a lot more money. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that you have to do depending on your path. Um, But there's also a lot of, like I said, escape hatches. Mm -hmm. Um, once you get into the training, like, yeah, this isn't for me. You know, I think I like having my life and be, <laughs> being able to do whatever I want to do and spending all my money on me and, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So,
0: well, and I think the thing that struck me is how invasive it is, because when I think about, you know, me as a straight woman, if I decided that I wanted to have a child with my partner, that would be an intimate decision between the two of us that nobody else has to be brought in on. Yeah. Except for a doctor. Right. Yep. <laughs> and so tell me a little <clears throat> bit more about what makes this process so invasive.
1: Well, so for example, I had to go to the doctor and... Um, You know, she had to write a note basically saying that I'm healthy enough to be a parent, right? So, for example, I mean, I do have rheumatoid arthritis, but it's not as bad as maybe some other people, right? But if I had a terminal illness or something, some other type of illness, um, it could very well be that she couldn't in good conscience say, yeah, this guy uh, is healthy enough to be a parent and handle all the stresses that are. Required, um, if you're doing it the old-fashioned way. I mean, nobody's doing that really, um, unless there's health issues that are really directly related to the pregnancy itself. Um, nobody's saying, "Hey, you aren't fit to be a parent." Mm-hmm. Coming
0: know. in and checking out your home and making sure that your home yes. is ready for a kid. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean they they can come in and I mean there's a whole list of things that that I had to do, but I mean they're. They can go and open any cupboard or door or closet or, or whatever. Um, I had to have references from, you know, like character references that I had to provide. They get up all in your finances because obviously they want to make sure that, you know, once you have kids. I mean, it is a huge change financially (laughs) so they they want to make sure that you can do it and while at least while i'm fostering you there is a certain stipend that the kids would come with um depending on their the level of care that they need Um, but even then that doesn't kick in for you know probably six weeks so they want to make sure are you able to feed clothe educate, um, you know, make sure they have the child care that they need, um, you know, before you get that stipend. Mm -hmm. So
0: So your therapist was working with you and separating all of this out for you and kind of pushing you into, you know, hey, you can do this. Like you're good enough on your own. You don't need a relationship. You don't need family buy in. You don't need all of these things that you are building up around it. What was next? What what did that do for you?
1: That's a good question. I don't, it, it kind of seems like a dream in a way because like, like I said, I had laid all of these, uh, you know, bear traps of, you know, to keep me from actually doing it. And then it was like, okay, I'm, I'm really doing this. So it really was kind of putting one foot in front of the other Um, The first step was just going to an expo where there were several adoption agencies there. And that's a lot of things that you have to navigate. I'm 46 now. There's some adoption agencies that have an age limit. Some are 45. Others are 50. Uh, They just want to make sure that, I guess, you're young enough and healthy enough. Or, you know, I'm sure they have their reasons. And then, you know, some won't work with single people. Um, Some won't work with gay people. So there's, you know, even with you know, once you take that first step, you have to say, okay, who can I even work with? And then once you've narrowed that down, digging a little bit deeper, okay, who is going to give me the most support that I need? Because I mean, you're going to need it.
0: Well, and did that weigh on you on those expos when, you know, you would get turned away because you were single or because you were gay or you were just like...
1: Not necessarily. I mean, this is Texas. There's a lot of uh, kind of built-in discriminatory policies everywhere you turn, right? So this is not anything new. So it's just... You know, kind of like in anything in life, not everything is for you. You need to find out what is for you and and who is, you know, going to be Team Jeff. And I found a great adoption agency. I'd kind of narrowed it down to two. and um, I think the, the one I went with, I think was the one that was most responsive and the one that was most proactive and saying, "Hey, we really want to work with you." So I think that helped and they've been great to work with. So and then once you do that, then it starts this kind of, I would say, about a year long process it took of all of these different trainings that you have to do. Um, It's a lot. It's a lot. And of course, then the pandemic happened and then. It's I had started the process, so it's like, okay, I need to finish this. You're kind of on a, a timeline. Right. So, for example, um, depending on what your job is, right, we all have um, what I would call uh, CEUs, continuing education units in order to keep up your license or whatever it is that you do. So it's kind of in the same way, you know, I mean, I had to take all of these classes and then after a year a year after you take a particular class, you have to take it again mm-hmm. unless you've adopted and then you're kind of out of that fostering. So it is a constant making sure that you're up to date and this this information is front of mind. And so, like I said, there is that kind of time frame and an urgency, I guess, in that sense to get it done.
0: Well, and the pandemic hit in the middle of your training and getting ready for this. But on top of that, it's not just, you know, working towards fostering and adoption. You're an architect. You're trying to navigate the dating world, like many of us. Uh, You are very involved in your church. And so how did you handle the pressures of 2020 with everything? Because I feel like the fostering was one thing and that would have been enough (laughs) to stress you out. But then there's the world is piling everything else on top of you too. Yeah.
1: I think, I, I think generally over the years, I've always felt like that there were things I wanted to do things I needed to accomplish, even small things like, okay, I need to do this house project or whatever. Um, but there was always some obligation. You know, even fun stuff. You know, I'm going to my niece and nephew's baseball game or we have this church event. But when the pandemic came, there was nothing to do. There were there was no excuse. And so I really had a conversation with myself like, okay, this is your chance to do all of those things that you've been making excuses for not doing. And now you don't have any excuse. And so doing the fostering thing, I had already started that. But I was able to kind of really ramp it up uh, a lot more um, and get done what I needed to do. But I had also been taking steps even before that to become a parent. One of those was um, getting a job at, you know, working for someone else. I was kind of I was working on my own for a while and it was kind of feast and or famine and You know, I enjoyed the flexibility and the autonomy that came with that. But I really missed working, going to an office, uh, you know, having the camaraderie, having the help, um, having health insurance and a steady paycheck, you know, those stability measures. And so getting a job was kind of a step in that direction. Uh, Going to therapy was a step in that direction. Uh, Also, over the pandemic, I... Um, refinanced my condo that I was living in and I um, took out some cash so that I could beef up my savings, So, um, which I was able to use to kind of do some of the home projects that I needed to do in order to have the kids, you know, safety measures and just making sure everything was up to date. Um, but also, you know, I think all of us were wondering, what is this going to do to our jobs? So I had enough to where I would be able to comfortably survive for a year if something happened. Um, And then if that didn't happen, then I would still have a a really nice savings um, to help with extra expenses with the kids if I needed it, or, you know, just giving me that financial stability um, and confidence that I, had quite frankly lost after 2008. Um, I really had PTSD after that. I I was so afraid of that happening again. And so just that step. Um, And just like anything that you pursue, that ends up opening up all these other things. So then there were some things that I realized, oh, I need to take care of this. I need to take care of this. Um, So uh, professionally, I you know, my background, my education is in architecture, but I never finished my uh, testing to get my actual license, which is something that was interrupted by 2008. And I I really wish I had finished that at the time, but it was kind of like, okay, do I pay for this exam or my mortgage? So um, I made the choice to pay my mortgage. So now I'm having to do it all over again. And again, it's kind of like, okay, well, I have no excuses. I have nothing else to do but study and take these exams. So I'm in the process of doing that. Um, I've got two of six out of the way. And then um, my current job right now is the head of interiors at an architecture firm. So I took the interiors exams and then got that registration. So I really tried to make the most of this downtime so that when we could all get back together again i could do it with full confidence knowing that okay i've got my family underway i'm financially where i need to be i'm professionally um, where i need to be you know with these registrations and licenses that will give me more earning power which will help um, with financial security and uh, raising kids and you know so all of these things are interconnected but i think at the end of the day it all comes down to providing the best environment for kids
0: well and it sounds like you (laughs) handled 2020 in such a healthier way (laughs) than most of the rest of us i'll say for me i just was kind of like okay shut it down (laughs) like i really kind of went within myself and was like, survive, survive, survive. And just like kind of floated through the year. And I can't claim I got anything done (laughs) (laughs) except for going to work Uh, and coming home at the end of the day. And that's great. (laughs) But I made it through, you made it through, maybe you got a little bit more done in the past year Uh. than I did. Is that typical for you? The way that you handle stress is like you go into overdrive and you're like, okay, let's get stuff done.
1: No. <laughs> I, I think that it, it's taken a lot of work with therapy and um, and with Enneagram work too. I know that you and I have talked about that. So typically my mode is to procrastinate, which is you know why I was able to do all these things in the first place that should have been done years ago um it's it's to procrastinate it's to you know just be racked with anxiety paralyzed with anxiety not really knowing what's the next thing to do sometimes becoming almost manic like going from one thing or the other to not necessarily actually do something and do it well but to give myself the illusion that i'm doing something Mm -hmm. and so that i can like tick something off of a list Um, It's not productive. It's, you know, unproductive doing. So, um, but I think I just, again, with therapy, I was in the right headspace to say, okay, you know what? These are things I wanted to do. I got to do it. Mm -hmm.
0: So. So you became a dad in 2021. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) So. What are some of the worries and stressors you had? Money. Before, okay. (laughs) Before becoming a dad. Not not just um, physical things, but emotional things. Like what are some of the worries that you had going into fatherhood?
1: Yeah. Um, I think, you know, worrying because I'm gay, how will that affect my kids? Will it affect them in a negative way? I think there's enough evidence out there to know that it doesn't. And, uh, you know, all of us are different in our own ways. And we can bring that unique perspective to the table. And as long as we do it in a healthy way, it can actually be beneficial. So I really tried to understand that and trust myself in that and and lean into that. Um, Financially, again, after 2008, I just, it really did a number on me. And so the steps I took to get myself in a better financial position, I think there's always still that worry just to make sure. It's one thing if it's just me and something happens, I can buckle down. I, you know, I can do what I need to do to make it through. But if you've got two mouths to feed and two brains to educate and um, just knowing the trauma that they would have already gone through and the added trauma of financial insecurity on kids. So I just, I take that very seriously. Um, I also knew going into it that, you know, I'm white, uh, but there was a very high likelihood that my kids would not be. And I knew that there was a lot of extra work I needed to do in that area to understand how I can be the... The best white parent to non-white children, um, and and that is an ongoing process, you know, of uh, activities, books, role models, you know, not not just friends that are in your um, your circle, but also who's their doctor, who's their therapist, who are who are who's their barber, you know, hair. Um, is was a big thing you know i mean just a a lot of different things um that i had to keep in mind and you really have to have a an open and teachable spirit to i mean not to say that i'm that way all the time but i just knew that for to give them what they needed and do what's best for them there are a lot of things i can provide but i can't teach my boys how to be a black man in america yeah so but i can do the best i can to understand the importance of that and make sure that they get the resources and the experiences that they need in order to do that
0: so did those worries change after your two boys actually came into your house and you had them. And um, were there new worries that were added or some things that you thought would be a huge stress that really wasn't?
1: I think, um, yeah. So I think the worries just became more concrete. You know, some of the worries were not as, you know, kind of subsided. Once you've been doing it, um, it's kind of like this anticipatory anxiety that really can't go away until you actually do it and you're like, okay I'm starting to get this down a, a pattern is emerging a routine is emerging okay you know this is going well um but there are things that are specific to them and specific to their experiences that they've had and you know I don't want to tell their business but um you know there are Some behavioral thing, you know, trauma-based behaviors that I hadn't necessarily anticipated. Um, I was prepared in the sense that, you know, I was trained for that. But it's, I mean, again, until you're actually doing it in the trenches, um, you know, it's hard. So
0: well and and so you mentioned having a teachable spirit and that means being willing to let other people in yeah. and being vulnerable with the things that you don't know who makes up your support network how are you getting that you know because you're having to open yourself up to a lot of different people but you have mentioned you know you've struggled with your family
1: yeah well i think uh, what i've tried to do you know In the process of therapy of being able to separate being a parent from being in a relationship, being in a relationship with having a a completely accepting and supportive family, just in that way that I had to separate those, I have to separate um, that situation with my kids. You know, these kids have never really had a family. They're not allowed to have any um, access to their biological family so they've been lucky in the sense that they've had some good previous foster placements and other adults that really see that there's something special about these kids and they're willing to go to bat for them um but as far as that family the green family um you know i went ahead and and you know wanted to include my family in the process so my parents went through you know their own arduous process to become uh, respite providers which means that they cannot they can not only just babysit but um they can care for them overnight so and that's an intrusive process too um so uh, you know i was thankful for that i mean they have really good relationships with my niece and nephew and i can't imagine why it would be any different with my kid you know these are their grandsons so um but you know it's it's different it's a transition uh for these boys because they've been in so many different places homes different foods rules ways of doing things so it's really hard and and i think they've probably done the best that they can and and me too and we're learning all from each other. So um, my family has been pretty good about accepting them, welcoming them in, although, you know, it's still pretty early. Um, I have been slow to introduce the boys to um, my broader support network, just because once they came into my care, I realized that because they've been through so much, because they've seen so many different Adults, strangers come in and out of their lives. I felt like maybe a slower pace to build those relationships and build those foundations before introducing someone new. Um, I I felt that that was probably the healthiest thing for them. But I do have, you know, um, church network is always going to be a big support for me, and there are people at church that are my uh, that are also respite providers. You know, they've gone through also that very intrusive, invasive process, and you know, uh, my personality in general is very loath to ask for help. Um, not for pride reasons or anything, just because I. The idea of inconveniencing someone else is just, I would never want that. But I think it's also easier for me to advocate on someone else's behalf than my own. And so now that I know that I have the responsibility of doing what's best for the boys, it's easier for me to ask for help because I know that that's that's what they need.
0: Yeah, so, and I I joked around with you, the first time you bring those boys to church, oof, (laughs) you you might want to prep them a little bit because they are going to get bombarded with hugs and questions and everyone has just been so excited for you on this and this journey. So I'm just going (laughs) to, when it's my turn to meet the boys, I'm just going to hang back Uh, and like, let you come to me and decide. Um, But I want to know, you know, I know it's slow and it's gonna, it's going to continue to be slow of who you're Mm -hmm. introducing them to and how much time they're spending with them so that they don't become overwhelmed. But for you, I know you said advocating for them makes it easier, but these respite care providers are doing this because they love you and they know as a result, they're going to love these boys. What does it look like for you to lean on your support network for the help that you need right now? And what is the help that you need
1: right now? That is quite honestly, really difficult for me. Um, You know, to depend on other people, just for the reasons I, I stated earlier, I'm getting, I think I'm getting better at it. But I do realize I need to care better for myself in this situation. Um, what I need right now, oh my gosh, I need somebody to come and cook dinner every night. <laughs> that was a struggle for me, even being single. you know, I, I've worked really hard actually over the past year of cooking and getting better at that, but, um, and, you know, part of my pandemic journey was getting better in the kitchen and getting better about eating healthy and uh, getting back in shape, which is, you know, all gone down the toilet since the boys have arrived. But uh, that is kind of a, a next steps goal for me is to get a handle on that, uh, getting back in the kitchen and being better about finding things that are good for me to eat that I know that they'll also eat. Um, it's just, it's a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle with kids anyway because they're so picky about everything. Um,
0: but also when you're trying to build a new relationship at the same time yeah. and that meal time is so important for yeah. that. And so you want it to be a good experience for them.
1: Yeah. And that's, that's, what's tough. Cause we, one of our house rules is that we eat meals together at the table, no electronics nobody's got ipads or iphones tv's not on it's our time to you know we say grace together and then eat and you know i, I felt like that was really important so if if the food's not right it just kind of <laughs> um casts a pall over the mood um but i you know i'm it's slowly progressing and getting better and you know these are kids that have their own likes and dislikes and um you know they are seven and eight so they have a whole lifetime of food habits and um and likes that it you know it's hard to learn so um we're getting there but. so
0: so nightly dinners would be yes, helpful please <laughs> from the support network if you're listening
1: <laughs> I I tend to be I don't want to say strict, but I do have I mean they do admit that I have a lot of rules <laughs> um, but what I've gleaned from my training and what I've been told specifically about these boys is that they do well under that and they really have done well. Mm-hmm um and and they will push you at every turn to see are you serious about this is this rule a hard and fast rule can we have more screen time can we watch tv after this you know and i you know i pretty much stick to it and once they've tested it and they realize they're like, okay yeah this is the rule and so there's no more fighting about those rules that have now been established and And, you know, I always couch it in terms of doing what's best for them. And, I mean, they've never really had a dad at all, um, ever. And so, I, you know, I kind of lean into that and say, hey, this is what a good dad does.
0: Well, and my sister, I've had conversations with her about this. And um, as a teacher and a mother of two kids, she always says, you know, you can have a lot of rules and then choose to dial back on them, but you can't be super lax and then decide to add rules because it doesn't go well. And Mm -hmm. so those rules are really helpful for not only having healthy boundaries for you, but teaching boundaries to them.
1: Yeah. And I think the key also to that is explaining the rules. Um, It's not just like, I'm the parent and because I say say so. I Mm -hmm. I mean, oh gosh, that's so irritating. (laughs) because number one not only is it infuriating to be told that but how are they going to know to make good decisions for themselves when i'm not around or they're on their own if i don't explain the thought process the decision making process behind the rule i mean i'm not doing this just because you know i get off on being mean or strict or whatever but there's a reason behind that and i think um, they appreciate that level of respect. Mm. So,
0: so let's bring in spirituality for a little bit. So throughout this whole process and thinking about the future, where does spirituality come into play when you start to get overwhelmed by the worries and the stress and everything? Cause there's you know, from an outsider looking in, there's a lot of pressure on you and I'm not even the one feeling it. (laughs) (laughs) So, so where does God come into play for you?
1: Well, in big ways and in little ways, I think this entire process has been, you know, bathed in prayer, not just me, but, you know, in my support system and I'm not shy about asking for it either. Um, I think also just some some little things that I've seen in this process with these boys in particular, just God's fingerprints all over it. I remember the first time that I heard the boys' names, my case manager said, Hey, I've got these two boys. I, I think they might be a good fit for you. And when she said their names, it just I got like a chill down my spine, like, okay, wow, this is, this may be the first time I'm hearing my son's names. You know, it All the work that I had done over years was starting to become concrete. And their previous foster placement, um, I found out. Um, one of them actually used to be my pastor years ago. So I knew her, I mean, it was kind of a larger congregation, so she doesn't necessarily remember me, but the fact that I knew her and then, you know, where they their church meets now, the, the senior pastor there, um, used to be the associate pastor at my church now. I mean, it's confusing, but there were all of these connections And it just seemed like at every turn we had people in common. So they were able to vet me before they even met me and feel comfortable about me and who I am and my character. And so there were just little things like that that, you know, God winks saying, okay, look, I've, I've got you. This is going the way it's supposed to go, and um, it's, it's all going to work out, even when it feels hard.
0: So it sounds to me like uh, God put these boys in your life on purpose.
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I think so.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode, and thanks to Jeff for joining me. I hope you'll visit TMUMC.org wellness to see all upcoming mental health events and get even more resources.